Zechariah chapter 8, if you're, a, if you're a visitor here with us, you might remember this, you might not. Zechariah, it's the second to last book in the Old Testament. So you just got to find the Gospels and flip to the left from Matthew, and you're going to get to Zechariah pretty quick. We've been preaching through the book of Zechariah, and here we are in, in chapter 8. It's page 747 if you're using one of our hardback Bibles, but uh, it'll certainly be helpful to have the word open if you're able and, uh, and look at it as, as we move along throughout this passage. There's sort of a bare bones outline on the back of the worship guide. Well, kind of on the middle of the worship guide, if that's helpful for you to keep an eye on. As we move along, you'll see the main points listed there. Again, page 747, if you're using one of our hardback Bibles, Zechariah chapter 8, verses 1 through 23. We'll look at the entire chapter. Uh, but before we get into it, let's, uh, let's kind of remember where we are in the book of Zechariah in this prophet. So remember, God's people, Israel, they had been unfaithful to the Lord. They had sinned, and they had gone, gone on in their sin in an unrepentant way. It wasn't really affecting them. They weren't really recognizing, oh, we're sinning against the Lord. And, and part of what made it easy for them to do that was they had these external religious activities, like fasting. That's what we looked at a couple of weeks ago, right, in chapter 7. And they thought, well, as long as we walk through the motions of some of these religious activities, I'm sure the Lord's pleased with us. So he'll overlook these other things. That's, that's what they thought. But remember, God wasn't interested in those religious ceremonies because he knew he didn't have their heart. And like we saw a few weeks ago, religious activity that doesn't come from the heart is worthless in the Lord's eyes. He's, he's not interested in it. But it, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that God didn't really have Israel's hearts, at least if we know anything about the human heart. It, that won't be surprising to us because the, the default human setting is a heart that is not for God, a, a heart that's evil. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. It's the opposite of what our culture tells us, isn't it? The culture is always saying, no, your heart's good. Follow your heart. That's not what the Lord says. No, the Bible says our heart is deceitful and desperately sick, but we're going to see something in chapter 8 we've already seen in earlier chapters in Zechariah, which is there is hope. And there is a sure and steadfast hope. In fact, because of God's grace, we know that hope will come to pass. We, we won't read the, the passage up front this morning, but let's at least look at the heart of the promise God gives to his people in this chapter. In chapter 8, look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. So God will end up doing a work to ultimately save his people. That's what this verse just, just told us. And, and as people who have been saved by the blood of Christ, the, the call for us is to let our hands be strong. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So, so the first thing we're going to do with this passage, we're going to look at the main idea of the passage, which is that, that we're being called to build up the temple that is the local church by loving one another. That's the main idea. That's the way we're supposed to make our hands strong. It's the first thing listed there in, in the outline. And then we're going to look at four reasons the Lord gives us in this passage to persevere in that work, to continue doing those things. So again, first, Let's look at the main idea of our passage, the imperative of it, which just means the command, the thing the Lord tells us 
to do. And that command is for us to make our hands strong. It's the phrase he comes back to a couple of times. Look at verse 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. Or look at the end of verse 13. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. Okay, so what's that mean? Well, that was a common phrase, common expression in, in the Old Testament in the ancient Near East. It basically meant persevere in a task. Make your hands strong for the thing. So yesterday when our family was out in the yard trying to get up all the leaves or at least a lot of the leaves, it was daunting when we first got out there. But, but the idea would be, okay, let your hands be strong. Commit. I'm going to do this thing. We're going to persevere through it. Let your hands be strong. In the Old Testament, it was oftentimes used to talk about war when they're pre preparing to go have a battle. So this is Judges 7, verse 11. The Lord says, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the army. So in other words, God will give them strong hands for this task. Or listen to what David says to a group of men in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 7. He says, now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant. So we, we make our hands strong when we persevere in a task that the Lord has given us. That's what the expression means. We, we don't give up, we press on. Okay, now, now let's look at the two main tasks God gives his people here in our passage during Zechariah's ministry. He says, make your hands strong. It's for two main purposes. So let's look at the first one. We see the first one in verse 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. Okay, a lot of words in the middle of that verse, but we could shorten it. Verse 9 basically says, let your hands be strong, that the temple might be built. God's telling his people to finish the temple. Finish the temple. That's one of the main ways he wants them to strengthen their hands. And that command makes sense because under the old covenant, what could also be called the law covenant, the, the covenant that Moses brought down the Ten Commandments, it was the law centered on the Ten Commandments. He gives that to Israel. Well, under the old covenant, the temple was at the heart of their worship of God. So it's where his presence was. It's where, uh, it's where the priests would come and make sacrifices to pay for the sins of the people, at least temporarily cover their sins. So the temple was at the heart of God's people. But see, that temple had been destroyed. We've talked about this a few times. The Babylonians came in several generations before Zechariah is prophesying. The Babylonians had come in, destroyed the temple, wrecked it to the ground, and God's people had been exiled because of their sin. But remember, they're back in the promised land. That's because God had released them from exile because he's a really gracious God, brought them back into the promised land in order to, in large part, rebuild the temple so they could again have access to his presence, to temporary forgiveness of sins. And he raises up this guy named Zerubbabel, who was a governor there in, uh, in Judah when they come back. And he starts rebuilding the temple. We read about that back in chapter 4. Well, in our passage, God's telling his people, hey, continue building the temple. You've got to finish the temple. Let your hands be strong that the temple might be built. 
And he needs to tell them that because they'd been tempted to give up on that task. So remember, there's enemy nations of Israel that were sort of trying to sabotage that task, to cut off supply chains where they couldn't get what they needed to rebuild the temple. There were also inside of Israel, there were people that were just really downcast because even though they'd come back to Jerusalem, it wasn't the same. So they were sort of down, uh, downhearted about that. Their spirits were low. So it was an easy time for them to, to not be zealous about rebuilding the temple. And it was a hard thing to do, again, because of the outside opposition. The people were discouraged. But the Lord tells them, strengthen your hands by committing to rebuild this temple. Okay, but look at the other way the Lord wants them to make their hands strong. So that's one thing. Keep working on the temple. Finish the temple. Look at the other one, verse 16. These are the things that you shall do. Make your hands strong. These are the things you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Okay, so in short, God wants his people to love one another. That's the second thing he tells them to do. Make your hands strong to build the temple, but also to love one another. Now, the Lord has lots to tell us in his word about how we're supposed to love non-Christians, how we're supposed to love those that are outside of the gospel, outside of the church. But, but the, the commands here, they're concerned with our relationships inside the people of God. So believers with believers. And we know that because of that phrase, one another, in verse 16. God's telling his people, this is how you treat one another. This is how you treat the fellow member of the covenant community. And we know the Lord has a really focused interest in that. He tells us all over his word, he's very concerned with Christians loving one another. Of course, he's concerned with us loving everybody, those outside the church as well. But he has this unique commitment, wanting us to love one another within the family of Christ. Let me read three verses. This is 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. John says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. So he's sort of summing up the, the message of the gospel. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So he, he kind of boils down the Christian life there, and he says, hey, this is one of the most important things, that we should love one another. Christians love Christians. Galatians 6, verse 10, Paul says, do good to everyone, Christian and non-Christian, but especially to those who are of the household of faith, fellow believers. Or this is Jesus in John 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So you know how you feel a, a greater affection and responsibility for your own family than you do for the family down the street, even though hopefully you love the family down the street. You feel a greater affection, a greater responsibility for your own family. Well, we're supposed to feel that same increased affection and responsibility for our fellow Christians. They're, they're family members of ours in, in a unique way. So, so in our passage, how does the Lord say his people should love one another? It's one of the two main tasks he gives here. Make your hands strong to do these things, build the temple, love one another. So how does he tell us to love one another practically? Well, first thing he says in verse 16 is that we should speak the truth to one another. That's pretty straightforward, right? Inside the church, we're not supposed to lie to one another. We're supposed to tell one another the truth. This is Ephesians 4, verse 15. Speak the truth in love. 
or Colossians 3.9, do not lie to one another. I think we know that. I think even for, for most of us in here, it's pretty easy to not kind of explicitly lie and keep the truth from one another. Praise the Lord for that. But, but one application that maybe we don't think of too often, we shouldn't lie to one another about our sin. That's sort of a, a sneaky way where it's easy to lie to one another about our sin. Let me give one example of that. So you could have a brother or sister, a fellow Christian, even a fellow church member who, who sins against you in a significant way, but you never tell them that. You act like that never happened. You sweep it under the rug. You, you pretend like uh, the relationship's going great. It's not strained at all. Well, the Lord actually tells us that's a, that's a subset of lying to one another, pretending like there's no sin that is there. No, like Jesus tells you in Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, he doesn't say ignore it. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So we want to be honest with fellow believers in that way, especially fellow church members. Now, that's just one example. There are many others. But the category is speak the truth to one another. Look at what the Lord says next at the end of verse 16. He says, render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. And when he talks about the gates, what's he talking about there? Render judgments in the gates. Well, that's where in the city the legal proceedings took place. They didn't have a courthouse. Instead of going to the courthouse, you'd go to the city gates. It's where the leaders of the town were. It's where the, the elders would judge particular matters. It's where all the legal proceedings took place. So here the Lord, he's saying the same thing he told us back in chapter 7. You might remember that. Don't use the court system to wrongly uh, hurt a fellow Israelite. Don't, don't give false testimony to get them into trouble. He told us about that back in chapter 7. It says the same thing here. It pairs together with what he says in the middle of verse 17. He says, and love no false oath. So false testimony against a fellow believer. And praise the Lord, since I've been at this church, you know, a year and a half, I haven't seen that happen. I've seen no legal proceeding where one member gave false testimony against another member of the church. I, I hope that doesn't happen. But we, we can notice something about the end of verse 16 that I think will be more helpful for us generally. So the end of verse 16, we see that truth makes for peace. That's a helpful phrase. Truth makes for peace. In other words, truth leads to peace. I think it's helpful for us to notice that because th there are always folks that are telling the Christian church things like doctrine divides. You probably know, but that word doctrine just means theological truths that we learn in the Bible. So the true things the Bible teaches, that's doctrine. There's folks that would say doctrine divides. Don't be focused on that. Don't be focused on whether Jesus is fully God and fully man. Does it really matter? That just causes dissension and arguments, right? Don't focus on whether God has an expectation for human sexuality. And if you deviate from that, then that's sin. Don't focus on those things that just divides. Don't, don't, be, don't be so focused on that kind of waste of time that, that leads to dissension. But see, what the Bible teaches is that a focus on the truth is actually what makes for peace. 
Isn't that something? It's truth that makes for peace. Now, now there's always going to be applications of Bible truth that Christians disagree about. And there we have to be generous and charitable with one another, right? The way that we that we apply truth in our lives, that's going to look different in, in many ways. But we do know the major doctrines of Christianity, especially surrounding the gospel, and the main ethics of Scripture, the way God tells us to live our life, that those things are clear. And see, highlighting the truths in the Bible, that's not what divides. It's downplaying those truths that divides. So here we understand, as verse 19 says, that we're supposed to love truth and peace, and, and we understand that one leads to the other. Truth makes for peace. But, but look at the catch-all God gives for his people that, that governs all their conduct with one another, or it should. Verse 17, do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. We talked about this a few weeks ago. God wants you and me to have a heart that wants good for others. That's the kind of heart that he's interested in. That's what he's saying in verse 17. Don't devise evil in your hearts against one another. So we should want good for our fellow believers in our heart. We should want good for all of our fellow believers. So, so by way of application, is this something that maybe an area where you need repentance? So with fellow Christians, do, do you ever find yourself wanting bad or at least not really wanting good? for a fellow believer, for a fellow brother or sister in Christ. Like the end of verse 17 says, God hates that. He doesn't want us to have a heart like that. And it doesn't matter whether we act on it or not, because it's still in our heart. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 22, everyone who is angry with his brother, of course, what's being assumed there is unrighteous anger. Everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So God wants you to have a heart that wants good for your fellow Christians. So when you, when you see a fellow church member, your heart should be warm toward them. Now, now, if you struggle with that, you can do a few things. Let me point out three things that would be good to do. If you struggle to love fellow believers, or maybe just a single fellow believer because of some situation, three things to do. First, pray the Lord would soften your heart toward that other believer. It's a thing we always want to do, right? Pray. Pray for that. Second, remember how patient and long-suffering and loving the Lord has been toward you. We want to remember that. Think about verses like Colossians 3.13 that says, bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So we need to be patient and long-suffering toward one another. It's the way the Lord has been toward us in the gospel. But finally, so pray, remember how patient God's been toward you. That'll help you be patient toward others. But finally, something that maybe we don't do as often, Confess that sin to a fellow church member that you trust to pray for you. That's a good thing to do. Not just with sins that have to do with not loving other believers well. With any sin. If you find yourself, if you find yourself caught up in a sin that's difficult for you, confess that to another church member who you trust will pray for you. This is James 5.16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. So we want hearts that want good for our fellow Christians. 
So, so those are the two ways, right, that our passage tells the Israelites to make their hands strong. Continue work on the temple and love one another faithfully. And the great thing about how this passage applies to us as Christians is those two tasks coalesce. They actually become one task. They were two tasks for Israel, build the temple and love one another. For us, in the new covenant in Christ, they become one. So for that first command to build the temple, remember, under the new covenant in Christ, we no longer have a physical temple building. In fact, we don't have any holy places. It's a major difference, isn't it, between the old covenant and the new covenant in Christ. This room is only special because we're sitting in here right now worshiping the Lord corporately. If we all got up and left and went across the street to Food Lion, all of a sudden that place would have the specialness that this room has right now. This room has no inherent holiness. The only thing that's unique about it is that we are gathering together worshiping the Lord. There's no holy places any longer under the new covenant in Christ, but we, we do still have temples. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Remember when Jesus came in the incarnation, he was the temple because he was bringing God's presence to sinners. So Jesus became the temple of God. And remember, as Jesus saves sinners, he gives individual sinners the Holy Spirit, and then we become temples of God. Talks about that in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians in particular. So Jesus was a temple, individual Christians are temples, but for our purposes, there's also this unique thing that happens when Christians gather together into local churches. And that is that then corporately as local churches, what's happening right here this morning, we are said to corporately be the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when the New Testament letters talk about building up the temple of the local church, one of the main ways we do that is through loving one another faithfully. Isn't that incredible? So these two commands that were two different commands for Israel in Zechariah actually become one command for us. The way we build the temple is build the temple of the local church through loving one another. So Paul talks about this in Ephesians. In Ephesians 2 verse 21, he calls the church a holy temple in the Lord, like we just talked about. And then in Ephesians 4.12, he tells individual Christians, our task is to build up the body of Christ, to continue work on this temple. And listen to the chief way he says we should do that. Ephesians, one of them at least. Ephesians 4 verse 15, speak the truth in love. So isn't that incredible? So whereas for the prophet Zechariah, God says, build the temple and love one another. In the new covenant in Christ, we build the temple by loving one another it becomes the same command. And you'll see it listed in the sermon notes, but this is the main idea of our passage, build up the temple of the church by loving one another. And this is the work that, that we should strive to make our hands strong for. Listen to the way Paul says it. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he says sort of the same thing. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So he's saying the same kind of thing. Make your hands strong, be immovable, right? Persevere in this work. Your labor is not in vain. But we should recognize this is hard work. It is hard work to love fellow believers, right? 
It's hard. It's much easier to simply love yourself or simply look out for your immediate family and kind of ignore other believers, at least when it's difficult, ignore them. That's why Paul has to tell us to be steadfast. You don't have to tell somebody be steadfast for something that's easy. It's why Zechariah has to tell people, make your hands strong, because it's hard work. But, but here's the good news. God gives us reasons to make our hands strong for this task. He gives us motivations for building up the temple of the church by loving one another. And, and we'll see four main reasons in this passage, and this is what we're going to do with the rest of our time. They're listed on the back. God gives us four reasons to make our hands strong for this task of building the church by loving one another. First reason he gives is because God is jealous for you. You might hear that and think, what does that mean? We're going to talk about it. But the first main reason, make your hands strong because God is jealous for you. It's how chapter 8 opens. Look at verse 1. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. When he says Zion, it's talking about the hill. It might be the one that the, the temple was built on, but it's just a catch-all to talk about God's people. So Zion, he's talking about Jerusalem. He's jealous for his people. Now, when we're jealous, it's almost always a bad thing, right? And that's because the things we're jealous for are things that don't belong to us. And that's when it becomes a sin. To be jealous for something that doesn't belong to you is a sinful thing. So maybe a sibling gets a present we wanted, so we're jealous. Or a coworker gets a promotion we think we deserved more than they did, we get jealous. Or a friend gets a car we wish we had. We usually get jealous about things that don't belong to us. But see, God's jealousy is for things that rightfully belong to him. God's jealousy, and you'll see that a lot in scripture. If you look up jealousy in a concordance, most of those are talking about the Lord having jealousy. But see, his jealousy is only for things that rightfully belong to him. His jealousy is like the jealousy of a husband that a husband has for his wife where a husband wants all of her romantic love. That's a virtue, isn't it? Well, it's a virtue in God. He wants the love of his people. In fact, the book of Zechariah opens with this idea. This is chapter 1, verse 14, the, the very first vision God gives Zechariah. The angel says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem. So God wants the heart of his people. God wants your heart. I can basically promise you won't hear a more incredible sentence than what I just said today. God wants your heart. He wants my heart. He's, he's jealous for you the same way that a good husband is jealous for the faithfulness of his wife. And that's an incredible thing, right? You know, haven't there been times where you left a job and they could have kept you if they wanted to, and you knew that. Going in to talk to your supervisor, you said, hey, I'm, I'm really thinking about leaving to go to this other spot. And in your head, you think, if he or she offers me this, I'll stay. And the boss knows that too. And the boss doesn't make that offer. And they let you leave. They were just fine to let you walk away. Hadn't there been times where somebody ended a relationship with you? They were fine for, for you to, to walk away. There may have been times where you tried out for something and you didn't get it. They were fine to let you walk away. God is not fine to let you walk away. The God of the universe, who, who's infinitely more valuable and significant and important than any boss or any friend or any coach, he wants you. 
That is an incredible thing. And, and doesn't that motivate you to give all of yourself to him? It should. Listen to Paul's logic. Philippians 3, verse 12. He says, I press on to make the resurrection from the dead my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So see the connection there? We pursue the things of the Lord because the Lord pursued us, because he's jealous for us. It's one of the main reasons we love God's people. Verse 1 in our passage, And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. So make your hands strong for the Lord. Help build up the church by loving one another. Give yourself to God in that way because God is jealous for you. But second, make your hands strong because your holiness is fundamentally a work of God. Look at what the Lord says in verse 3. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city in the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. So, so your holiness, your growth in obedience to the Lord in all things, including the love you have for fellow believers, that's ultimately God's work in you. And this chapter, God just hits it over and over again to make it really clear. It's his work in us. So, so notice first the confidence the Lord has. His statement in the middle of verse 3, he says, Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city. So remember, that's where God's people were. So he's saying there will come a day where this city will be known by being faithful to me. They will be holy. They haven't been faithful in the past. Israel wasn't present, uh, faithful in the present, but he says one day Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city. Now, now when we declare a plan, we're supposed to chase that declaration with, if the Lord wills it, or Lord willing. Told that in James, right? We can make our plans, but it's the Lord who actually makes something happen. But see, when God gives this plan here, there's no question about it. He's the Lord who wills all things. So when he says one day his people will be known by their faithfulness, we know that will happen. But see, our passage makes it clear. It's, it's not that he thinks his people are extra good or really virtuous or really strong, so they'll just figure it out. They'll make it happen. No, he guarantees his people's holiness because he's the one who's going to make it happen. Look again at how verse 3 starts. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. So God's people will become faithful first and foremost because they'll have God. It's kind of like if there's a project at work and the supervisor is not happy with the progress. So he or she says, yeah, this thing will get done this week because I'm going to come in and take care of it. That's the kind of thing he's saying here. They'll end up being faithful because I will come and dwell in their midst. God's people, they, they hadn't been faithful to him, so he's going to come into their midst in, in a unique way to make it happen. I think Zechariah is talking about the same thing that Ezekiel talks about when he points forward. This is Ezekiel 36, 26, a prophecy the Lord gives him. This is what it says there, Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So in verse three of our passage in Zechariah, 
God's telling his people that one day he's going to give them his presence in a unique way. Well, Ezekiel tells us that will be the Holy Spirit. God will give us his Holy Spirit, his presence in a unique way, and that is what will transform his people. And that's exactly what happened as a result of the gospel of Christ, isn't it? If you're a Christian, the the reason you're faithful to the Lord is because he put his Holy Spirit inside of you. Remember, one fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness, Paul tells us in Galatians. So so God can promise his people will one day be faithful because he knows it'll be his presence in them that will make it happen. So see, it's all fundamentally a work of God. At bottom, it's the Lord working in us to obey him, to love one another. Look down at verse 7. God's talking about the Israelites who who haven't yet come back to the promised land. Look at how he says they'll get back. Verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Look at the last sentence of verse 12. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all things. Our passage makes it so clear this is all God's work. It's all his work from start to finish. And and he tells his people to trust this promise because they've seen him keep his word to them in the past. They've seen him be faithful. He always accomplishes his tasks. Look at verse 14. There he says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, As I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. Okay, so God is saying, I'm going to be faithful to keep my word, Just think about the last major thing I promised I would do. That was his wrath coming on Israel. That's when he brought the Babylonians to destroy the city and take them into exile. God had promised he was going to do that. He'd done that for hundreds of years. He said, if you guys keep sinning, here's what's going to happen. And he had kept his word. And so what he's saying, he's leveraging that. And he's saying, hey, if I kept my word when it was such a hard, difficult word, a word of judgment, You can trust that I'm going to keep my word to do this good thing to you also, right? And of course, we get to do the same thing in the gospel. If there's times where you're doubting that God will keep his word to save you, that maybe God will look at you as a Christian and say, ah, he's not as far along as I wanted him to be. She keeps sinning in this way. I'm just going to let them go. Here, there's several things you could remember to kind of fight that kind of doubt, but one of them is this kind of thing that the Lord just did. The hardest part about the promise of the gospel was the judgment of God's son, right? The hardest thing God had to do in the gospel and fulfilling the word of the gospel was punishing his son. If there was a time where God would have opted out and said, you know what, this is not worth it, it would have been then. That was the hard part. This is the easy part. This is the part that the Lord actually loves to do because he's making you look more like Jesus. As Christians, God is making us look more lovable. That's what he's doing in this time. He already did the hard part. He's not gonna let go of you now, right? It would be like, Lord willing, we're driving to Kentucky at Christmas time, uh, mid-December. It'd be like if we drove all through Tennessee down Interstate 40 for a thousand hours and then up north into Kentucky for, let me tell you, what is not a very exciting drive. 
from Nashville to Henderson, Kentucky, and let's say we get 10 minutes from Maria's parents' house, and then I say, you know what? I think we should just turn around. This trip is the worst. We have these five minutes left. Let's just turn around and go back home. Nobody would do that. That's what it would be like if the Lord just said, oh, she's sinning again in this way. I'm just going to let her go. No, 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 no. The Lord already did the hard part. We can trust he's going to do this good part. He kept his promise then. He will continue to keep his promise now. And that's what he's promising here to his people. He's the one that will do it. And these promises he's making, these are old promises. These are promises he made to Abraham back in the book of Genesis, Genesis 12, 15, 17. He makes these promises to his people. He will keep these promises. In fact, the name Zechariah means God remembers. Isn't that good? For this book that's full of so many promises the Lord makes, that's what Zechariah means. God remembers. He's the one who will make his people faithful. And, and as surely as it's God's work to bring Israel back into the promised land and build the temple and grow them in love, it's his work in you that will get you to heaven, that will build you up in love and holiness on the way to heaven. Now, now why should that be an encouragement to strengthen your hands, to, to pursue loving your fellow believers? Well, it's because you know your growth in love will be a successful endeavor. You, you can fully press in. You can give your entire heart and soul to the pursuit of holiness and love because you know that God will see it through. You, you can really bear down and work on loving your spouse sacrificially because you know that you've got God's promise and power behind you to do that thing, to grow in that area. You, you can really press in to work on confessing sin to people more quickly, loving them in that way, because you know you have God's power and promise behind your growth in that area. You can really work hard to give time and energy to serve your fellow church members because you know you have God's power and promise behind you to see you grow in that area. That's what Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So God encourages the people here to, to make their hands strong because their holiness is fundamentally his work. It will come to pass. Third, Make your hands strong because heaven is better than you can imagine. Look at that, the imagery about the future promised land that surrounds God's commands in this chapter. We've already seen that God promises to one day be in the midst of his people for them to be transformed into faithful followers of him. Look at what else we're told about the future heavenly city. Verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Now these promises, they aren't about a future earthly Jerusalem. Like we saw with the vision of the woman in the basket in chapter five, that this city is in the future after all sin has been destroyed for all time. Now this is, this is a heavenly Jerusalem. And this picture we're given in verse 4, it, it is incredible, isn't it? This picture that we just read about, we've got grandparents sitting next to the street and young children playing in the streets. And the idea is the heavenly Jerusalem will be a peaceful place. So in the ancient Near East, these are the two most vulnerable groups, the elderly and children. And here the Lord says, heaven will be so good 
It'll be a place that has perfect peace. The most vulnerable can just play in the street, not worry about anything, not worry about being harmed or, or taken advantage of. And that's because there, there won't be any sin or sadness or suffering or death in heaven. That image from chapter 5 in Zechariah, all of those things will be stuffed into a basket and carried away outside of heaven, is the picture we're given in chapter 5. Verse 12, we're told, for there shall be a sowing of peace. So there's only peace in heaven. Well, related to that, everyone will be perfectly provided for. So there's peace, but, but there's also provision. Look at the rest of verse 12. The vine shall give its fruit and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. So the citizens of heaven will be perfectly provided for. We'll have everything we need. Look at the comparison the Lord gives us in verse 10. He says, For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor." He's talking about what the promised land was like when Israel first got back. There was no commerce. There was no economy. There was no wage to be given, right? There was just poverty. And of course, there was no safety because there were still outside invaders. But, but verse 11 signals a, a change that's coming in the future. The citizens of heaven will have perfect peace and perfect provision. And Zechariah, he gives us a perfect illustration of what it'll be like going from this sinful world that we're all sitting in right now. To heaven. So remember, the, the initial question that kicked off the whole discussion in chapter 7 and 8 was about fasting. The people said, hey, do we still need to fast? Do you remember fasting was to show their repentance for sin? Their sin had caused the Lord to judge them by destroying the temple. Well, the temple had begun to be rebuilt, so now they were wondering, do we still need to fast? Well, look at what the Lord says in verse 18. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth month, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. So, so whereas they were supposed to fast out of repentance for their sins, well, in the new heavens and the new earth, there's no more sin. There's no more mourning. There's no more sadness for sin that needs to happen. There's no more fasting in fact what he says here the fasting becomes feasting that's how the gospel works before you were trusting in jesus you, you were guilty before the lord you were deserving of condemnation because of your sin you and i were just like israel who who needed to fast because of our our disobedience but once you trusted in jesus alone to be your lord and savior then all of your sins were covered your sinful record was was wiped clean and you were given christ's righteousness and now that you're no longer under God's condemnation, you've, you've been welcomed by him through Christ. So see, the picture for us as Christians, you no longer have to fast for your sin. Instead, you get to feast on Jesus. Isn't that so good? That's the dichotomy. Before you knew Christ, you needed to fast for your sin. Now in Christ, you get to feast on Jesus. Fasting has gone to feasting. And if you're here and you're not a Christian or don't know what you think about Jesus, doesn't that sound good? That's, that's what's offered you in the gospel. And you don't have to work hard to get it. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to go to certain holy places at holy times and perform rituals and ceremonies. No, Jesus has done the work. All you have to do is come to Jesus 
Give your life to him. Trust in him to pay for your sins, to save you. And then your fasting will become feasting the way it has for us as Christians. So come talk to me about that. Email me. My email address is on the back of the worship guide. Email me. Let's talk about that if you're you're willing to think about it. But for the Christian, we we no longer have to fast for our sins. Instead, we get to feast on Jesus Christ. And, And that truth, we get to experience it now in part. One day we'll experience that fully in heaven. So just imagine what it would have been like for you this past year if all the good things that happened to you had still happened, but then all the bad things that happened this past calendar year, those got pulled out and a good thing replaced it. So it was all feasting. It was all good news. That's heaven. Only good things all the time. In the words of verse 6, it's marvelous. And that destination is worth striving for, isn't it? That's how it connects. How does this help us to make our hands strong, to love one another the way the Lord tells us to? Well, because heaven will be worth it. It'll be better than we can even imagine. Well, let's close by looking at the final reason God would have us employ this passage, or the final reason he would employ in this passage to make our hands strong for the work he's given us. Fourth reason, do it because God's victory will be universal. Look at verse 20. Thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. Now, this is a promise that one day people from outside Israel, from other cities, will come to Israel's God. It's the final truth God uses to encourage his people to strengthen their hands for rebuilding the temple and loving one another. Do it because God's victory will be universal. So remember, in the Old Testament, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, God's really only working with one ethnic group of people. He's really just working with Israel, with, with the Jews. But he had always promised that one day he'd go outside of Israel to save other people, people from the rest of the nations. It's exactly what we read in the congregational reading. Revelation 7, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So that's the promise that's in front of Israel here. God will go outside of Israel to save people from every nation and tribe and tongue. His his victory over sin will be universal in that way. Okay, now why is that an encouragement to make your hands strong and to persevere for the Lord? Well, there's a funny thing about humans. We like to be on the side that wins. Humans like to be on the side that wins. We see it every four years when it comes to presidential primaries. Why is it there's so much focus on Iowa and New Hampshire at this time of year? It's because the first two primaries, the caucus and the primary, happen there. And it's significant because then those candidates get momentum. Because you know what a funny thing is? If a bunch of Americans see, ooh, that guy did best in Iowa, yeah, I think I like him. Because people like somebody that wins. I've seen this in myself. After five years of subpar, nobody else cares about this, but you you can try to empathize with me, of subpar Georgia Tech football. I grew up loving Georgia Tech. 
After five years of subpar Georgia Tech football, I have become less interested in watching Georgia Tech than I did before, even though they became bowl eligible last night, beat Syracuse. But I've seen my interest in Georgia Tech football wane. Why? Because people like a winner. Well, listen, Jesus's church is a winner. The, the temple that he's building through the gospel being proclaimed, it's a temple that will never be destroyed. It's like we read in Matthew 16, Jesus says, the gates of hell won't be able to withstand the church. So the, the tiny upstart religion, which started 2,000 years ago and seemed blasphemous to Jews and uneducated and stupid to everybody else, the religion that never should have gotten off the ground has spent 2,000 years growing and growing and growing and saving more and more people. And of course, the Lord said that would happen. He says it here in our passage, verse 22, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. So the message for us is, is to get about doing the work of the Lord because he wins in the end. His victory will be universal. So, so this coming week, as we each have opportunity to, to give a fellow church member a ride or to carve out time to pray for members in the directory or to check in to, to see how a fellow member's relationship with the Lord has been, what we can pray for, and when we're tempted to not do something like that, keep these reasons in mind. Pursue that kind of love because you're being allowed to help build a church that will ultimately win universal victory. And the, the place that path of love is taking you is better than you can imagine. And the work of holiness inside of you is really God's work in you. It's all his work. And God wants your heart to have love like that because that means he has your heart and that's what he's jealous for. We, we have lots of reasons to pursue this task, don't we? Verse nine, thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. Let's pray together. Um, Father, we are thankful for your commands that you press us on with your word. We know that we will undoubtedly sit still if you are not pushing us on toward love. So thankful that's what your word does. Father, one of these reasons would be sufficient, should be for us to obey you. In fact, simply you commanding us something in your word, that is sufficient reason for us to obey. But you're so kind to just build the argument over and over and over again and give us all of these reasons, Father, why it's a good thing to build the temple of the Lord, the local church, through loving one another. We pray, Father, that here at this church we'd be faithful doing that. We're so thankful, Father, that, that the effort doesn't rely on us, that the outcome isn't determined by our strength or virtue or smarts, but it's your work in us for your glory, and we take great hope in that. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.